You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Great to be together at Christmas time. I love it, love it. Can't wait for Saturday downtown. Sort of feels like our way of offering Christmas to the metro area of Richmond, which is really encouraging. So uh, hopefully you can come. If you haven't done seats yet, as Dan said, join us at the five. We'd love to have you and invite some friends, maybe go out for dinner or something like that. So Dan mentioned we're getting ready to send another $20,000 to partners in the Ukraine to continue to seek to provide relief to those who are affected by the war. That's one example of what your giving does. And Hope is known for being a generous church, which is awesome. That's a great reputation to have. You probably know that about 20% of a church's income comes in in December. So thank you for any giving you're able to do, maybe giving you've already done. I love thinking about the fact that uh, among many different initiatives and expressions, our church is able to really help people around Richmond and also do our very best to provide relief and love to people around the world. So thanks for your giving. Okay, let's pray. Father, just a moment to take a breath and to hear the quiet in the midst of many things that are going through our minds, our phones, our computers, a moment for the manger to seek you, Lord Christ. Would you meet with us here today? As a result, wherever we may be in our faith, would you help us love you more, understand you more, desire you more? We pray for each other in the room today with all that's in this room all the storylines and the contours of our lives. Some feeling up, some feeling down, some confused, and all kinds of other words in between. We pray, Holy Spirit, come to each of us and help us experience your beauty and your love and your power. In Christ's name, amen. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Wow, nobody did that at eight. That's awesome. You guys have had more time for the coffee to take hold. I love all that cozy stuff of Christmas. I love fires and hot chocolate and... Just all the cozy stuff and families getting together. Love it, all of it. So we're talking about the surprise of Christmas. Today we're going to talk about the big and the small. The big in the small. Like surprise how big this one is in the smallness of the circumstances. In the smallness of infancy. In the smallness of a manger. How big So substantial, I think, is the contrast here that it's very hard for us to grasp. 
and I absolutely include myself in that. Whatever I understand of God, I think it's very little of all there is to understand and know of who God is. And Christmas is sort of an invitation into all of that. So the Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke and John, have what you would call birth narratives, Christmas accounts. But they're all quite different. Matthew's is a genealogy. Basically, Matthew's saying he came through these people. Luke's is really a narrative. He came through these events. And John's is like a theology professor. He came meaning this. So we're going to take a look at John this morning. John writes more abstractly. He writes more theologically. And that appeals to some people. It definitely appeals to me. Gotta say, I love it. But I know it doesn't appeal to everybody. Some people are like, can we land the plane here? Make it a little more concrete, something to drive home with? We'll try. In John chapter 1, this is how John introduces Jesus coming into the world. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So you read this and there's all this stuff going on here like the word In the beginning, the word already existed, and if you're like me, if you're new with this text or coming to it freshly, you're like, how can the word already exist in the beginning? Because if something is the beginning, then something didn't exist before the beginning. What John is trying to say is he always existed. The beginning is the beginning as we know it, not the beginning as he existed. And so he's calling Jesus Christ the word. That's a little abstract. I remember the first time I came across this. I'm like, I, that's, I don't get that. Okay, snippet of background on this. In Greek philosophy and culture, the Greek word for word is logos. And in Greek philosophy and culture, to make a long story short, Logos meant something like the glue of the universe. All right. So John is writing and he's going to say, in the beginning, the word already existed. In Genesis chapter one, you may remember this reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, just spoke it right out with words, apparently. He said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. If you're looking at the parallels between John 1 and Genesis 1 and they look quite similar, John fully intends that to be the case. And John is doing something extraordinary here. John is linking up the Jewish mind and the Greek philosophical mind to laser in on the manger of Jesus. Because when he starts and says, in the beginning, the word already existed, the word was God, the word was with God, the Jewish mind goes right to Genesis 1.1. 
But when he says that to the Greek mind, the Greek mind says, this is the one who's the glue of the universe. And so in this remarkable, beautiful, poetic, abstract way of describing Jesus, John is bringing the Jewish mind and history and the Greek mind and philosophy together to help us understand the answer to this question. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? It's really the question of Christmas. What child is this? Or who is this? Or what in the world is actually going on here? And one of the reasons it's challenging for us to grasp is because it's so big that our very finite minds have a really hard time grasping the bigness of it. What's happening here? The creator is entering the creation. The eternal is entering time. The author of the story is writing himself into the story he's authored. So you know this, anything that's created, anything a person creates, it's smaller than the person. It's just one little expression from the person. If you're a, if you're a potter and you create a bowl, then you made the bowl, it's beautiful, but the bowl is smaller than the potter. It's just an idea, it's just a thing they saw, it's something they made. So the creator is always much bigger than the created. How many bowls could a potter make? Probably hundreds, maybe thousands of different designs. You get the point that the capacity of the creator is much, much larger than any created thing we ever see. So now we're talking about the creator of the universe, a bowl to a potter. So the creator has entered the creation, which is really hard to understand. The creator of the universe is choosing to come into the universe that he's made. In the beginning, the word. So in Genesis 1-3, then God said, let there be light. This is hard for us to grasp. Because everything that he creates, he creates by speaking it into being. And for us, it's hard to grasp. If you make something, you have ideas, but then you apply your energy. And then you, if you're an artist, you use your hands one way or another. Or you write a story or a novel. Or if you're a business person, you create business plans. And you do this work that has this rollout. You don't just say, create Fortune 500 company. And presto, it's there. God creates by speaking it. It's really hard for us to understand This is the capacity of God. This is who we're talking about. This is beginning to get to the question, what child is this? This is the magnitude in the manger. Through him, all things were made. It's so big, it's hard to grasp. So is this a miracle, what's happening at this birth? Well, that all depends on your definition of a miracle. A miracle to us might be something like this. This doesn't happen through the normal scientific processes that we know to be part of, and pick your scientific discipline, physics, biology, chemistry, whatever it's going to be. Is this a miracle? Well, we're told that this birth of Jesus is a virgin birth, that his mother had not been with his father before he was born. Is that a miracle? Well, it certainly lies outside of the normal patterns of scientific measurement, reproducible experimentation, and all that. But it also depends on who's doing it. 
So in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Years ago, somebody said to me, you know what? If you don't believe that sentence, it doesn't really make any sense to read any further. And I thought, that's a really good insight. Wish, wish that was my idea. But anyway, thanks for telling me. <laughs> right, but here's where we have to get like, let's call it like not play kind of church games with it. If that's true, if God created everything that exists by speaking words and bringing them into existence, then he created human beings. He created mountains and trees and biological patterns and the way it all works and electrons and protons and on and on and on it goes. He created all that when he spoke it into being. So while a woman having a baby without having been with the father before would be a miracle to us, I don't really think it's a miracle to him, if Genesis 1.1 is true. If Genesis 1.1 is not true, then we ought to go play golf on Sunday mornings because what we're doing is a waste of time. But if Genesis 1.1 is true, it completely changes the entirety of our existence. Okay, so if Genesis 1.1 is true, ready for this? A virgin birth is logical. It's not probable. It's not normal. It's not the way we normally see scientific processes as they're ordinarily wound to roll out happen. But it is logical. If God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, then creating another human being, creating the conception within Mary, strikes me as pretty easy for him if that's who we're talking about, if we're open to that possibility. So C.S. Lewis says, the miracles, in fact, are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Okay, that's a bit abstract, isn't it? A little obtuse. What he's saying is the miracles that we do see, they're tiny snippets of the creator's capacity. Just like that one cup that that potter made is a tiny snippet of that artist's capacity. Okay, so we're going to move now into some things that get a little closer to the reality and sometimes the hardship of life. Because after Jesus is born, excuse me, after we have the account of the fall in Genesis, we get this verse in Genesis 3. This is God speaking to Satan, the devil, and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and he'll, you'll strike his heel. In Genesis 3, way back early in the story, long before we've ever heard of shepherds and wise men and mangers in Bethlehem, we get this word from God speaking to Satan, I'll raise up one from her offspring who will crush your head. You'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Okay, you know what that is? It's the first Christmas verse in the entirety of the Bible. And it's not cozy, and it's not about hot chocolate and fires and Christmas choirs. It's about the battle between good and evil and light and darkness and life and death. So all of a sudden, the cute baby in the manger, we begin to see the magnitude of what's happening here. In a sense, the music changes from... What child is this who laid to rest? To something more like, 
The Coventry Carol, I don't know if you know about it. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. Now the music changes. Because it is not long after Jesus is born in Bethlehem that the dark forces and the cold winds of opposition begin to mount up against him. And what we begin to see quite quickly is that there's a battle going on here. A battle that is raging. Kingdoms will be in conflict. And the first clear conflict of kingdoms that we see will be between King Herod and King Jesus. You may know that Herod the Great was uh, basically the king of that whole region of the world. He served the Roman army and the Roman occupancy. And Herod was not a good man, but he was a smart man. And sadly, history's had a lot of people like this. You wish people who weren't good weren't smart because then they wouldn't be smart enough to make their not good plans work. But Herod is not good and he is smart. And so he's on to what's happening here with this birth of Jesus. When Jesus comes into the world, there is a new king in Herod's town. An interesting little reading when you read in Matthew, it says, King Herod was disturbed when he learned about the birth of the one they call the king of the Jews. It doesn't take long to look at that sentence and see the construction of it and realize you got kings in conflict. Now, one king is lying in a manger, seven pounds in a diaper, a king? And the other king is in a palace with armies and power and every possible gathering of influence he can pull together. And when the king in the palace hears about the king in the manger, he's not happy about it. So here's an interesting thought. I bet you know this. Every heart is a kingdom. Every heart is a kingdom. And no kingdom can survive with more than one king. And so what's happening to Herod in the grand scale with light and darkness and moral opposition actually happens perhaps much more subtly in all of our human hearts because no, no, no heart can have more than one king. So if you take Jesus seriously, when you first learned about Jesus and you first began to consider who he is, you began to realize that King Jesus is going to challenge, in my case, King David for the kingship of this heart. And that challenge is an unsettling experience for people who don't play games with it, who take Jesus seriously. And for every one of us, our heart is a kingdom. But sometimes what we do is we run a weird sort of monarchy prime minister kind of arrangement. Like, I'm always confused when I read both about British and Israeli politics because they have elections like every other week. And I'm like, how do you do that? Like, why doesn't somebody get elected and then they have the job? And it seems that there's elections and then there's votes of no confidence and then they're out and then they have elections again. So, right, many of you paid attention to the fact that Queen Elizabeth of England passed away this fall. And so you look at England and you're like, well, who really runs the show? There's a prime minister and there's a queen. So the queen's the head of the whole deal, right? Well, no, not really. She's really an influencer figurehead, but she doesn't actually have the governing power. Okay, so who has the governing power? Well, the prime minister primarily. 
Okay, so England operates with this prime minister and monarchy kind of thing. And I think most of us do something like this in our own hearts. Uh, You got a prime minister and you got a monarch. Well, the royal monarch would be Jesus. But for many of us, what we've done is sort of made him a figurehead influencer without actually having the governing power. We've decided that, you know, we'll be the prime minister of our own hearts. So every heart is a kingdom, and no kingdom can operate with two equal kings. And Herod knows this better than anybody. Herod is not a good man, but he is a smart one. Herod was known for fits of rage doing horrible, absolutely horrible things. Herod killed, had killed, three of his sons who he was concerned were challenging his power. Okay? Apparently, Caesar Augustus said it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. And that's Caesar Augustus saying this. You know, we're not talking about, you know, Mother Teresa in Rome in Caesar Augustus. And he describes Herod as a bad guy. Herod's not a good man, but he is a smart one. And what's happening quickly is it's his kingship versus Jesus's kingship. And if you know the Bible, you know what his answer was? Kill them all. Just kill them all. Dale Bruner says, the gospel came to Herod too, and he apparently didn't want it except to murder it. I imagine some kind of a cabinet conversation where Herod tells the head of his regime, kill all the babies under two years old in Bethlehem. Okay, in Matthew 2, we get a picture of this. This is a short snippet out of the larger story. When Herod saw that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was filled with rage. Herod being filled with rage is not going to be a good day for anybody. Sending orders, he put to death all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, according to the time he learned from the Magi. Okay, I get sort of fascinated with the timing Like, when did the Magi come? Apparently not when Jesus was born like the shepherds. Was it two years later? Well, Herod had everybody killed under two years old. Nobody seems to really know. People suggest it was some number of months after Jesus was born. And you would say, well, then why would Herod have everybody killed two years and younger? And that would be very characteristic of Herod because he's going to kill them all. Well, sir, we think that he might have been born some number of months ago. I don't care. Kill every one of them who's born two years old and younger. Could you imagine it? It's as though what Herod is saying to his, let's say, law enforcement guy, who says, sir, you would be really tentative to counter Herod. Sir, we're only looking for one, right? We're just looking for the one. That's right. Sir, if you kill all of them, you're going to kill a lot who are the wrong one. I don't care about killing the wrong ones. If it means killing all the wrong ones to be sure we kill the right one, then kill them all. This is the kind of person we're talking about. So what are we saying here? The magnitude of the manger is nothing short of the battle between light and darkness, between good and evil. And Herod's engagement with Jesus is just one depiction of it. Jesus in the manger is a baby with a bounty. Like what? 
A baby with a bounty? Okay, I would get it if there was some vendetta story that had rolled out. If there was like gangs in Bethlehem and, you know, Herod had a bone to pick with some 25-year-old guy for threatening something about his reign, but a baby with a bounty? Like something dramatic has to be happening if it's a baby with a bounty on his head. And yet we start feeling it now. So the Coventry Carol, which I mentioned, I get sort of geeky about all this old music around Christmas time. This is like a 15th century English song. And the song is written in minor keys. It's very haunting. And when it was first written, it was supposed to be sung by a chorus of women to women. Because the idea was, Herod's coming for your child. Here's how the words go. Herod the king in his raging charged he hath this day. His men of might in his own sight all young children to slay. So, wait a minute. What happened to the hot chocolate and the fireside? What happened to have yourself a merry little... See, what's happening here, the magnitude of the manger is much bigger than cozy Christmas. And believe me, I love cozy Christmas. But when the cold winds of adult life and the hard things come along that are deep and vexing and confusing and full of grief, we all know we need more than a cozy Christmas. The magnitude in the manger is none other than the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. One of my favorite little sections of Christmas verses is Isaiah 9, 5, and 6. You know the part that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I love it. Do you know what verse comes before it? Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning fuel for the fire. You see, it's in the context of war and death that we get the promise of the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, prince of peace. So can't we keep it cozy at Christmas? Well, here's something that I think can happen sometimes. I feel it too, right? I want to talk about cozy Christmas. I think sometimes in the church what we've done is we have so much taught cozy Christmas, whether it's December 25th or May 9th or August 25th, we've so much taught cozy Christmas that we've almost made Jesus kind of like a Christmas elf, Really cute there in the manger, cozy Christmas. It makes me wonder, you've heard this and I have too, many people who say, well, I used to go to church when I was a kid, but I don't go anymore. And I wonder if one reason that may be so is because you were taught a cozy Christmas Jesus, but you weren't taught a Jesus who has the power to overcome the darkness and to stand against the cold gale force winds that can sometimes come along in adult life. 
And so we do have a cute baby in the manger, but the magnitude of the manger is no less than the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. He is the four-office king of Israel. What do I mean by four offices? One, he is wonderful counselor. That means he has all counsel and all wisdom. When your life gets vexing, confusing, hard, painful, dark, and you don't know where to go or where to turn, he's wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. When the powers of life and the darkness seems to be overcoming, he has all power and he has power over all forces. He is everlasting father. When you're feeling alone and when you don't know where to turn, his is a personal love and an always presence. And he is the prince of peace. When you feel the cold winds of grief, when you feel the anxieties and the fears of life, when you are so gripped by what will happen if, he's the prince of peace. And do you know why he came? Like, let's try to get it real simple. Do you know why Jesus came into the world? You ready for a simple but maybe unexpected answer? 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Have yourself a... You know what that one makes me think of? More powerfully, more beautifully. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. And the final magnitude in the manger is the promise of his return. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. We've been using this phrase, but I want to keep repeating it. He came the first time incognito. He'll come the second time in glory. When he came the first time, not everybody understood who he is. He came modest and humble in a modest life. When he comes a second time, nobody will doubt who he is. Just as the lightning shines in the the sky and is seen in all directions, Jesus is confirming. The first time he came small, the next time he'll come big. And the first coming guarantees that the second coming is going to happen when he will make everything new. And when every tear and every disease and every death and every debt and every divorce and every depression and every brokenness will be healed when he returns. Three questions about the magnitude in the manger. Who is it? It's God in a manger. What's he doing? He's defeating Satan's darkness and death. And where is it all headed? in the full redemption of his return. Let's do it, ready? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Father, we thank you for all that's happening in the manger. Lord, help us each one in our lives, our thoughts, our questions, our hopes, our sadnesses, our fears, our joys, our regrets. Help each of us, Lord, to come into the magnitude of the manger. We pray in Christ's name, amen.